This episode of the Disney Film Project is sponsored by TouringPlans.com. Head over to TouringPlans.com and use their tools to save yourself time and money when you are at Walt Disney World or Disneyland. You can use the Lines application on your mobile phone, use the Crowd Calendar to figure out which parks to hit which days, or use the Touring Plans to save time and money waiting in line. TouringPlans.com is the sponsor of this episode of the Disney Film Project. again everybody to the disney film project podcast this is the program where we talk about the films of the walt disney company the animated films made by the nine old men the computer animated stuff made by pixar the live action stuff with tim allen and, and everybody in between i mean it's we we covered the gamut here the full breadth of disney film is what we try to bring to you each and every week i am brian kilpatrick host of the show and along with my fabulous friends. Uh, we run DisneyFilmProject.com, which is the website of this here program, as well as a blog where we talk about the films of the Walt Disney Company, including the shorts, the cartoons, and lots of other stuff. So make sure you go check that out. Helping me in that task and in this fine show is Mr. Todd Perlmutter, who is a blogger over at TouringPlans.com. He is Chief Technical Officer at DisneyDrivenLife.com, works over at OnTheGoAndMCO.com, and I believe uh, is responsible for creating the internet. I, I am. Why do we always have that conversation? I don't know. I'm not supposed to say it was a secret project. Uh-huh. Yes. Monitors everybody. Nobody is safe. That sounds like familiarly like a Sandra Bullock movie. That sounds like a Sandra Bullock movie. Well, there's worse things than than being a character in a Sandra Bullock movie. Depends on the movie. <laughs> this is this is also true. Uh, normally, we are also joined by Miss Brianna Alessio, who you can find over at Adventures of Bree at adventuresofbree.blogspot.com. She is hard at work this evening and won't be joining us, but you will be able to hear her on some upcoming shows. So make sure you tune in for that. We also have, of course, our wonderful producer, Ms. Cheryl Perlmutter, who you can find on Twitter at CherylP3 or over at about.me slash CherylP3, where she talks about the trials and travails of producing such a fabulous program and, and trying to make Todd and I sound like we know what we're doing. How are you this evening, Cheryl? I'm doing really good. Hey, I did perfectly on that last one. Yeah, this is very <laughs> true. We did sound like we knew what we were talking about. No, I mean, it sounded like Rue was totally with us the whole time. That's right. Speaking of the Disney films, we talk about the ones that are coming out or have come out on the Blu-ray. You might have heard of it. It's the new craze that's sweeping the nation. People watch movies in their own home. It's, it's nuts. It's wacky. And among the newest of those to come out is The Rescuers, the big hit from 1977, the year of my birth, as a matter of fact. This came out when I was two months old, basically. Wait. Also, our Star Wars connection. Indeed. Yes, 1977, the year Star Wars was released. It was a very good year. Does that mean that anytime I'm on the show, we have a Star Wars connection? Oh. No. No, no. <laughs> uh, so I tried. It's, it's, a, it's a movie thing. So here's yeah. an interesting thing. So it came out a month after Star Wars did. Um, and um, while it was about neck and neck in the U.S., it outgrossed Star Wars in Europe, specifically France and Germany. 
Interesting. So at the time, this movie was actually technically more popular than Star Wars. Aha. Um, it has not remained more popular than Star Wars. No. No, considering we just came back from a Star Wars convention that was really, really crowded and crazy. Right, and note there's no such thing as a rescuers convention. That we know of. That it we know of. They could be being held by mice everywhere. Yes, sitting on matchstick boxes. Exactly. This could be like the number one film among mice, and we and you never you would never know. Well, maybe that's why that's a random run tomatoes. Well, unless we got kids to talk to them. This is true. Children yes. apparently can't understand mice. This is something you learn when you watch The Rescuers. Yes, um, it is. This movie was a big, big deal for the Walt Disney Company. Uh, the company at the time, like I said, it's 1977. It was between the the reigns of one Walt Disney. Uh, after it was after his death, and then um, before Michael Eisner came in in 1984 and kind of remade the entire company. So this was uh, a a period where the company was trying to make a lot of good movies and not entirely succeeding. And in in this one, it was the biggest hit they had had uh, since The Jungle Book, which was the last major film that Walt worked on. He he had actually bought this uh, book for adaptation, uh, The Rescuers, uh, but he was not able to actually work on it. Yeah. It was uh, – and it was not – there was no success since considered considered matching until um, Little Mermaid came out. Correct. Yeah, so it was a big like thing in the middle of this gap. Yeah, it was considered – I mean it, it, most people at the time, if you read the reviews from, from that era, not people re- reviewing the Blu-ray now, but the reviews from that era basically uh, called it a return to form for Disney animated films. It was, you know, it was something that was – they looked at as you know, a, an important return to the films like Bambi or Dumbo, the drama that, that Disney had done early on in their, in their production. So this was something that uh, the, the critics really, really enjoyed and, and thought was great. Yeah, well the critics – were basically still on the bandwagon of that the studio was failing and going to shut house and stuff like that up until this movie. So, which was not entirely wrong. No, it, it wasn't. I mean, the the movie the it was struggling. Um, you know, but the to show how good the movie did. I mean, we're talking about how it outgrossed and outpaced Star Wars when Star Wars was released. Um, it was also had the largest opening box office record for um, nine years. Yes, it did. Yeah, until uh, um, American Tale in 1986, which happened to be um, the mo- a movie put out by Don Bluth, who left Disney in 1979, but also uh, got his first um, animation full-time role on this particular film. Yes, and if you want to hear more about Don Bluth, we talked about him in the Fox and the Hound show, so you can go back and listen to that one. Right. Uh, but this this movie, that was the other reason this movie was important, is it was sort of a, uh, a bridge film between the nine old men and the new breed of Disney animators. So Milk Call, Ollie Johnson, Frank Thomas uh, were, were credited as the main animators along with Don Bluth on this yep. film. And then and you had Keen. folks... What's that? And Glenn Keane. Yes, and Glenn Keane uh, played a key role. Ron Clements, who you know we remember from John Musker and Ron Clements, who did Treasure Island and or Treasure Planet rather, and uh, The Little Mermaid and Aladdin. Uh, he he was a big part of this film. So a lot of the uh, changing of the guard started with this one. This is kind of this this was one where they meshed a little better than they did during the uh, the Fox and the Hound. Can I say this movie does have um, 
does have controversy. It it does. This is true. Because apparently there was one of the one of the first releases was um was handed out outsourced, and so apparently the outsourced company put in the image of a topless woman in one of the backgrounds. Indeed. Yes, they did. Um, it was that happened in 1999, um, and uh, it was a huge recall. It was one of the biggest recalls at the time. 3.4 million copies were recalled and recovered. That's that's a lot of copies. Yeah, and um, Disney took a loss on that particular release up until a certain point. You know, so it was uh, it's, it's, it's a, it was a lot of money back then to do that sort of thing. Companies were not well known for doing that sort of thing back then. It's also a different movie in that it's like a, like I said, it's a return to the drama. So if you remember, you know, Disney was doing a lot of comedies between uh, Jungle Book and 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 this film when it came out, and this was. Uh, I would almost call it sort of a template for some of the later films because there's music in it, but it's not a musical. Uh, and we see, like, if you if you look through the history of Disney, you see this over and over again. So remember Snow White, uh, Pinocchio, you know, those films, Dumbo were all musicals, and then they sort of moved away from the musical. Yes, and in this film, and you see the same thing with, the, with what a lot of people call the Disney Renaissance or the '80s and the '90s, with Little Mermaid and Aladdin, and and those films being musicals. And then you know now they've they've moved away from that again. Uh, it's just something that seems to happen over and over again. It's just kind of an interesting yeah. thing. And the the one song was actually uh, nominated for an Academy Award, right? But it didn't win. The someone's Correct. waiting for you, right? Yes, which is a, a very lovely song. Yeah, no, it's a cute song. The book is written by a lady named Marjorie Sharp. She is the author of a series of nine books called The Rescuer Series. And it is about a mouse named Miss Bianca. Okay. The movie, this first Rescuers movie, is based on two of the books, The Rescuers and Miss Bianca. That's Those are the first two books in the series. Walt, Walt Disney uh, originally got the, the rights to the books back in the, in the late 50s. Uh, but they never did actually start working on it. He he didn't really think the the original book was strong enough to adapt, and so it wasn't until after his death that they really went back to it and started started looking at uh, what they should do with it. Yeah, the movie, by the way, was released three times. It was released in 1977, again in 1983. This is in theaters, by the way, and then again as 1989 as a lead into a sequel called The Rescuers Down Under that was released in 1990. And I just want to mention that because right now, if the Blu-ray release that they just put out actually has both the Rescuers and the Rescuers Down Under on it. Yes, indeed. Yes. They, they rode this horse for a while. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. It gets, it gets, so this is the first animated feature to inspire a sequel. So none of those crazy twos were made after it, before it, I mean. It was the first Correct. one. And it was originally, the sequel was originally supposed to be an animated series that was set to start in 1989. But that animated series was reworked to be Chippendale Rescue Rangers, using the same plot as the movie originally had, the, the TV show that they originally had, and stuff like that. And then they adapted it. Which is uh, awesome. Yeah. And you, can, you can go ride, like, the, I believe, the ride at uh, Disneyland's Toontown is based on Chippendale's Rescue Rangers Gadget's Go Coaster. Cool. Gadget being the female character, for those who Direct. don't remember. One of the interesting things is I, I'm kind of wondering how popular this Blu-ray release is going to be because at the time when the 
a movie was first released on DVD, Disney completely underestimated the sales requirements for it, and the movie was constantly understocked everywhere. People were just trying to snatch it up, and they couldn't keep up with demand. Interesting. Yeah. See, because it's, 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 it's weird because, you know, we'll, we'll start talking about the movie in a minute, but this is one that um, – it's one of those Disney films that I've always heard about, and it's not been until the last couple of years that I actually uh, watched it again. I mean, I, you know, obviously I watched it when I was a kid. Um, I Probably one of the re-releases, I'm guessing, because uh, I remember seeing it in the theaters. But – it's never one that I've held in my head, you know what I mean? Like, it's never one that when you think, when you list off the Disney films, it's never one that I've always come to. Uh, it's just in the last couple of years, I feel like it's, I've, I've, you know, I've watched it three times in the last probably 18 months. Yeah. I, I mean, my, so my biggest problem with it is, is that I don't find the enemy to be memorable, right? The main two characters are the two mice I always remember, but I never remember the, um, the Penny, I don't remember her. I don't remember Mr. Snoops or Madame Medusa. Not that I don't remember their names. I just don't ever. They don't ever come to mind because they're not memorable to me. The same way other characters are in the in Disney movies. Yeah, it just it feels different, right? It doesn't feel like a typical Disney movie, at least to me. You know, um, I mean, it opens with the the sort of prologue of of Penny dropping the bottle. Uh, uh, she drops a message in a bottle into the river, and it's it's juxtaposed with the the opening song of the movie, um, which is the journey or who will rescue me. That's sung while it while it kind of follows the bottle, and we see the opening credits. Yep. And and that's that's the reason why that doesn't feel quite as Disney to me is because it's the first time they they did something like that in an animated movie. Typically, they didn't have a prologue or you know make the credits part of the story. It was just kind of they showed all the credits over a still right. background or something and and you know moved on with life. And we opened with the you know the book opening or something like that. But exactly, usually the book opening was the big thing, and then they but they kind of moved away from that and since since around this time. The still paintings behind it were done by Melvin Shaw, who also did work on Lion King, Bambi, Great Mouse Detective, Black Cauldron. So, a few films you might know. A few, a few films you might know. Yeah, uh, the the bottle that that Penny drops out uh, ends up in New York City, uh, and and this for this part of the film is actually my favorite is um, where we get introduced to the Rescue Aid Society because. It's you see basically all, all these humans walking into the United Nations in their various and sundry native garb of their countries, and then you see mice in the same sort of garb climbing out of their bags or their pockets or whatever, and going into a an underground meeting area where of the rescue aid society. Yes, I just love that. Just that one little concept. I think it's just really brilliant yeah it, it's cute that it's in it's like a un of mice inside the un I, it's it is cutesy i mean it's i don't have any argument with that it and it is a it's a nifty scene i like how they have the mouse scouts playing the music and stuff like that this is one of the divergent points in the book is the it's originally called the prisoners aid society and they were actually going to use that in the movie originally and they decided that they didn't want to focus on prisoners so originally penny's character was to be an adult character that they were going to go help who was trapped in a prison in a faraway land and instead it switched around to what we got so yeah, i like the rescue aid society a little better oh it's clever don't get yeah. me wrong it's 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 clever it fits the 
animated world better. The other thing might fit a book world better, but I think this is a good fit for an animated world. Don't get me at all wrong there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we get introduced to immediately to Bernard, who is one of the mice, and he is played by Bob Newhart, uh, which is a big get for Disney in those days. Bob yes. Newhart was, was the cat's meow, as they say. He, he uh, was but, big. Yes, he was. Or small, was this, according was, to him. Was this during the Bob Newhart show or Newhart? Which one was it? Um, it was... I think it was still like Newhart was ending because I think Bob Newhart was the early '80s. Gotcha. Right. Okay. The one, the one with Larry Daryl Daryl. That was the '80s. Yes. Okay. Uh, but this this Bob Newhart is very understated, which is kind of his thing, right? He, he in his comedy tends to be a little understated, and every once in a while get wound up. But he does he does a great job of playing Bernard as a very calm. Uh, measured sort who, who doesn't get worked up and also has uh, a fear or a superstition of, of the number 13, which is very funny. Yes, throughout the, and it plays throughout the movie. Yeah, also, the he's entire a, thing. Also, also, he's afraid of flying, which is, a, which is actually one of uh, Bob Newhart's stage gags, where he, has a, he used to have a stage routine where he would talk, play a character that was afraid of flying. And so all the flying jokes are right out of that stage gag that he used to do. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, yes, Bernard is the janitor at the Rescue Aid Society, it should be clear, and uh, he's the one that the, the chairman calls upon to, once the bottle is brought into the meeting area where all the delegates have, have assembled, he's the one who has to go and get the message out of the bottle, which is very amusing, because he has to pull the cork and then kind of climb down in, shove the, the, the paper out. I thought, just the, the physical comedy of it, I mean, it's not laugh-out-loud funny, but I thought, you know, just from an inventiveness you know, it could it would have been very easy to lay the bottle on its side and just have him crawl in and pull it out. But uh, the way the way that they staged it and blocked it, I thought was uh, yeah. very cute. It's kind of the thing that you do in animation, right? Because well, it's not just that, but the whole right the way he's in the bottle, but also the whole thirteen thing leads into it because he brings out the comb as a ladder and it has yep. thirteen rungs. And he makes the comment, so they tell him to stand on the twelfth rung and not use the thirteenth rung, which is why he falls into the bottle. Yes. <laughs> So it's it's just very cute in that respect. Um, have they? I forget. So did they? They sing the song at this point, right? Their rescue aid society song, which is yes, they sing it right right as uh, right as they're bringing the bottle in. They sing the rescue aid society oh, okay. song, and that's the the entrance for Miss Bianca, uh, played by uh, the lovely and talented Miss Ava Gabor. I, yeah, I don't dislike the song. I wish it was more uh, catchy than it actually should be. You know. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 the song's fine as it is, but it's not like a. It, it's not what you would expect from like a, a later film, like a like one of the like the Disney Renaissance era films. It's just a kind of a quick chanty sort of thing. It's like a scout anthem almost, which I'm sure is what they were going for. Because they had, but, they had mascots play it, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it it, it would have been you know better. I agree. Like it would have been better to be a little more catchy or something. Yeah, it was more a pledge than a than a song is what the problem with it was. So I get what yeah. you're saying about the scout thing. Um, so I just wanted to say that so their founder is on the chart and his name is Euripides Mouse. Yes, right? which is fab- fabulous. Yes, and I it's it, this what it says on there. What should be Latin, but it's not Latin, so we could actually read it. It says we never fail to do what's right. And um, so, so what it is is it's. And acting out of the Aesop fable, the lion and the mouse, right, where Euripides mouse is the mouse and there's a lion and he's pulling the thorn or whatever it is out of the lion's paw. 
right? Now, what's more interesting, and this is why this is actually more germane to the story. That's why I wanted to mention it, is that Euripides is um, most famous for developing the concept of the mythological hero as an ordinary person in extraordinary circumstances, mm-hmm. right? And that's really what Bernard and Penny and Miss Bianca are all, all are in a lot of ways in this movie. They are that type of hero. And I think that's why the name Euripides is used at this point. Good call. I didn't, I didn't think of it that way, but you're right. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And um, I, I'm not sure if they were trying to note the year of Euripides' death because they, they say established 405 BC, and I thought it was interesting that Euripides died in 406 BC, so I'm not sure if there was like a correction to the Greek year at some point in time, and maybe once upon a time we thought it was 405 BC. I just... Because we're talking, you know, a long time ago. So, yes, I think that's the important thing to get across there. That it was a long time ago. I didn't mean that. I meant the movie. But okay, <laughs> they were both a long time ago. They were just different sorts of long times. There you go. Yes, fine. Uh, but they ultimately do get the message out of the bottle, and they find out uh, that it is a message from a girl named Penny. And she says, you know, the letter is addressed to the Morningside Orphanage uh, and says help, you know, that she's being held hostage. So there's not not a whole lot to go on in this letter. Right. Which is why I am guessing that the chairman doesn't mind when Miss Bianca volunteers to accept the case and, and chooses Bernard to go with her, the janitor. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's a much promise or much lead to this case. The chairman sort of sloughs it off on them. Yeah, it's it's um, interesting. I mean, she really jumps in it, and it's not clear why. Um, what I find most interesting is the letter says New York, and it ended up in New York. Yeah, and we know <laughs> it wasn't sent from New York. Yes. As we find out later, it was sent from the – it had to go through the Gulf of Mexico – around Florida, up the Atlantic, into the Hudson, and then to where it was found, right? I mean, that's what had to have happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, and we saw it at the beginning. She threw it off the boat, and, you know, we're assuming it wasn't, you know, the boat in, in you know, the Hudson River. <laughs> no, no, we, right, we, right. Even then, at that point in time, we didn't know where the boat was. I mean, we find out in a few scenes from now where the yeah. boat actually is. So it's... Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Miss Bianca is the delegate from Hungary, and her she's acted, as you said earlier, with, by Eva Gabor, who is also from Budapest, which is in Hungary. So, absolutely. So, the two of them take on the case, and uh, they head over to the Morningside Orphanage, uh, but not before making a slight detour through the zoo, uh, or Miss Bianca suggests the detour through the zoo. Uh, that Bernard tries to make the detour and runs into a lion, uh, which, if you know, which according to the Euripides thing should be okay. They should be all be friends, but apparently it does not work out that way. No. <laughs> yeah. It, it's kind of interesting because it kind of happens and it's just like a loud noise and then they kind of talk about it for five minutes. Yeah. That. Uh, that's kind of my issue with the film uh, yeah. is they do a lot of things that I don't understand why they do it. Well, to be fair, at this point in the film, this, the zoo was supposed to play a bigger part because on the um, Blu-ray that we've got, and I'm not sure if this was on the DVD or not because I didn't own a copy of the DVD, um, there's a whole scene about how they were going to have another musical number here that was done by Louis Prima in the zoo where he was a bear, and they were going to – I know you find you know 
not that he played the bear before, but you know, it's interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and the, so all the animals were going to sing around and dance, and you know, you'd have the usual song and dance people that do those scenes along with Louis Prima in there, and they just didn't like it and they didn't use it. Interesting. Well, because let me let me explain my my thought of because I also watched a scene with Todd, and the way that they portrayed it as well is that they were going to have Penny with with the bear in a tree, watching visiting the lion every week. So and so it was so I kind of understood like. It was more of a backstory for Penny, and it was not. And it wasn't. And they built it. You know, they built the lion, the lion, and the pet. And Penny is a way for um, Bob Newhart's character to go interview him. Gotcha. Okay. And so that's what wasn't needed because we really didn't need the interview part. There's a lot of stuff like that. Um, if you look through, if you look through the movie, there's a lot of things that it feels like they're cut out. And we'll talk about another one when they, when we get down to Devil's Eye or uh, to Devil's Bayou rather. There's a scene like right when they first arrive there that it just kind of cuts from one thing to the next, sort of cuts out some in between stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, they they go over to the Morningside Orphanage where Penny had been and they meet Rufus uh, the cat so Rufus is apparently the guardian of the orphanage I don't I don't see any uh, other humans in the orphanage so I'm assuming <laughs> Rufus runs the place well that's when, my guess later well, he, when they go there yes I have a feeling that they were down at dinner because remember she gets called to dinner at the end there right yes true and um, we do see people in the orphanage later on when she's on the newscast after she's getting adopted. Do we? Yes. Okay. I thought All we right. did. I thought we saw like kids and other people. I thought we just saw the news reporter. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't remember. She now. does mention leaving the orphanage to go to attend adoption days, which I thought was weird. Because wouldn't you hold an adoption day in the or- orphanage? Neutral ground. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not saying they, they. I'm not saying. No, no, I know you. No, you're right. I, I don't honestly remember, so I'm just kind of having fun with it at this point. It's okay. Uh, but Rufus is played by John McIntyre, who was a character actor at the time. But you might have seen him. He was in uh, Psycho. He was in the uh, Richard Cogburn film uh, with, uh, of course, John Wayne, Catherine Hepburn. Uh, just again, kind of a character actor, and this, it, he was animated by Ollie Johnson, and this was uh, Ollie's last movie for Disney, so this was his last character. Uh, he done, which no, he made as a caricature of characters. himself. He made as a caricature yes. of himself, so it's like <laughs> there's a there is a movie Frank and Ollie, um, but the, they were best friends almost their entire lives. Uh, yes. Once they met each other at the studio, and they lived next door to each other, um, I mean, just a really, really touching story. So you should go check that out. We'll, we'll, we'll do that movie someday. Yeah, I believe in that. I believe in that movie that you just the um, they mentioned. That's where they mentioned that this is their favorite movie to have done without Walt Disney. Yes, it is. They do mention that. I, I don't agree with them, but you know, <laughs> it's okay. I don't have to. Uh, yes, but they, they managed to go to the orphanage, and uh, in talking to Rufus, 
they they find that um, you know Penny was a little depressed because she had not been adopted, and uh, apparently some of the other kids had told her that she wasn't good looking, uh, which is something that gets repeated later on in the, in the film. Uh, and it wasn't. It's not until Bernard presses Rufus that he mentions that there was a a lady who tried to uh, get Penny into her car. Uh, right before Penny ended up disappearing. Because everyone's assumed that Penny just ran away at the orphanage. Yes. But it is, of course, Bernard and Bianca say, no, she she did not run away. She was actually uh, abducted. And so they, they figure out that the woman uh, who had tried to lure Penny into her car uh, was a lady named Madame Medusa. It's it's funny, too, because not only was she just, like, abducted, apparently she, Madame Medusa, who he's talking about, is just down the street. Right? Yes, of course. <laughs> so she wasn't actually even taken all that far. There could have been must have been an investigation or anything that went on. No, you get you get the feeling right that they didn't really care all, all that much about Penny being gone because he he makes a passing reference to the police. You know, checked it out, but they gave up a long time ago. Uh, and we find out later that it's been three months. So it it feels like you know, oh well, you know, orphan girl ran away. Who cares? Yeah, I. I I don't think they did anything, as near as I can tell. So I agree. Yeah. Uh, when they when they finally get to the pawn shop, uh, they're looking all around in the pawn shop. Bernard and Bianca are to figure out what's going on, and um, you know where is Penny there or what's happened. And uh, Madame Medusa stomps into the pawn shop in her own inimitable way. I don't get Madame Medusa. I think oh, you said this earlier, like that, that the villain was not very memorable. I I just that that's I agree with you. I, well, I don't did you, understand. Did you look into the background of the character at all? I didn't. I know that they originally had thought about putting Cruella de Vil in. Yeah, that's that's the thing is because they had not only thought of putting Cruella de Vil in, they had started animating it as Cruella. So they were kind of locked into the work that they had already done to design a character that was basically a Cruella clone, and they ended up doing that, right? And not well. No, not well at all. I mean, there's just similarities in how she moves and everything. Like Cruella, despite being evil, is elegant. And I don't think it plays as well in the character is not elegant. Yeah, I think that's, that's a very good point. Because Madame Medusa is... She's not... To say not elegant is, an, is a disgrace to people who are not elegant. I mean, she's just, like... It, it's just a weird character. I mean, like, they throw, you know... Half the time she's wandering around in what seems to be a nightgown. Yeah. It's, I'm not sure, right, or, or a muumuu or whatever she's wearing. I, I agree. Well, I guess it is the same thing, right? A, a bad Jessica Robert, Rabbit dress. Yeah. A very bad Jessica Rabbit dress. Yes. What I find funny at this point, right, is because we're talking about the Cruella thing, is that the, the reason why they didn't use Cruella was because they weren't interested in doing sequels, which is funny because it's like we said earlier, spawned their first sequel. So it's like this clever puzzle thing, but. The character just – I don't understand the motivation, right? So in the character in the book that she's based on, okay, is called the Diamond Duchess, right? This yes. is what she does. She collects diamonds. Everybody knows in the world that she collects diamonds, but she does it like in a, in a real Cruella de Vil way, like the way Cruella collected pelts and everything like that, right? And, you know, that sort of thing. That's the same concept, right? That's that it was diamonds. I, that's probably what attracted Walt to the work in the first place was the similarity of stuff that he was familiar with. 
right? Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, how, that's how he worked a lot of times when he, when he purchased the things rather than came up with them as unique concepts of his own. They didn't develop the character. They just took away the character that was intended and left this shell. That, that's actually a very good way to put it. It's just it's just shell of a character and not really a fully formed character itself. And it's just it's just awkward too. I mean, like she's just very awkward, which I guess you know could be evil in its way. But you know her mannerisms and the way she walks and everything—it's just it, it's very off-putting. But not in that oh she's evil and maniacal sort of way. Just kind of what am I watching? <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to point out that before uh, she storms in, the mice actually discover stuff that belongs to Penny, so they yes. know Penny oh, is actually true. in there. Very true. Very true. Yeah, they discover that, that Penny had been there and that something's going on. And it's once she barges in, she hops on the phone and she's talking to to Snoops, uh, which we don't we don't know who Snoops is yet, but that um, he is in Devil's Bayou and that Penny is there. And they are trying to find something called the Devil's Eye, which is uh, turns out to be the world's largest diamond. Uh, and she packs up her stuff and says she's got to get down to Devil's Bayou and make sure Snoops is doing this right, because he's obviously not. Uh, and we end up with both Bernard and Bianca, hang- or Bianca rather, hanging onto a bra strap as they try as she runs out of uh, the pawn shop. Bianca is hanging onto a bra strap, hanging out of the suitcase, and Bernard has to catch up to her. They managed to finally hop into the suitcase, then the suitcase gets bounced out of uh, Madame Medusa's car. Uh, again, with like with that scene, to me, I'm like, okay, I understand the idea of wanting to add some energy, perhaps, you know, to chasing her down and falling off the car and all that kind of stuff, but ultimately we end up exactly where we started at the beginning of the scene, is she's headed to Devil's Bayou and they don't, you know, they are not. Right, they need to now find a way there. Yeah, but so I don't really know what the whole jumping up and down on the bra strap and hanging out in the car thing really accomplished. Um, I think it was just to introduce the looniness of the character. I mean, remember, like I said, they already had stuff that was Cruella Cruella animated, so they redid it for Madame Medusa. And this is definitely one of those scenes because the car, instead of being Cruella's white car, is a same car painted red. With Madame Medusa yeah. sitting in instead of Cruella. I, I just think they were just reusing the animation that they already had done. Could be. That that, that would make a lot of sense actually. I mean it, it's it's interesting and it's a fun little it's a fun little bit, but like I said, it doesn't really accomplish anything in the story. Right. I think for me it actually did. Ooh. Because I really liked the fact that they that this was an attempt for them to for them to get to follow her easily. So I, and I, and I kind of found it as like a stumbling block along the plot. That's the way I found it. Um, I really, I actually, you know, like I was was actually, you know, I didn't, I didn't know if they were going to succeed or not. And, you know, they didn't, but you know, had they would have been a much quicker movie, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so this is like Hercules fighting the Hydra for them. It's it's a it's something that they have to overcome. Yeah. I like that. I could see that. Yeah. It makes sense. Well, because otherwise we would not get introduced to Orville, the Albatross. Albatross. Sorry, wrong movie. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but no, Orville the Albatross, who is actually the the airline that they fly 
uh, to go to Devil's Bayou, which apparently they, you know, that is the only way that, uh, that is the only flight, rather, that the Albatross airline flies is to Devil's Bayou from New York City, because and that would make a lot of sense. And nothing else apparently flies there either, so. Well, yeah. well, well as I was all say, from this movie, because I'm not, because although we're not talking about Down Under. Yes. Or- Orville's cousin does come back in the next movie. That's right, because Orville's not in the next movie. It's Wilbur is in the next movie. It's also Flight 13. Yes, it is. Yes. And and there's 13 steps on the ramp to get onto uh, Orville to try to get, you know, into the sardine can that they use as a seat to, uh, and, to and, fly down and, a double fire. And fly. she uses the same trick again. She uh, tells him to jump over the last step, then he doesn't have to walk on 13 steps. Yes. <laughs> Which Bernard is, is somewhat smitten with Miss Bianca, we, we should say. Yes. And so it's, it's getting okay it, for him. It kind of sort of goes both ways. I, I, in fact, she, there's no real time where either of them necessarily really fall for each other. I think there was probably like just an ahead of time reason that she ha- asked for her partner to be him. Yes. That's just my opinion. I agree. I'm sticking to it. Perfectly fine. So, do we know uh, Orville, played by Jim Jordan? Do we know what, what his he was famous for? Tell us. He played on the old time radio show Fibber McGee and Molly. He was Fibber McGee. Ah. Which which most people that are listening to the show will have no clue what we're talking about. Most people younger than me. Yeah. I I listened to Fibber McGee and Molly because it was funny, but. Most people would not know this. He also retired when this film was over. This this yeah. is apparently one of those that just you know people were like you know what I'm good after this was over. Yeah, well it was it had that like we said earlier that motif of being a changing of the guard movie, so people took it as a yes. time to step down. Indeed. Uh, but so they take Orville through uh, the streets of New York and off to Devil's Bayou. So apparently Orville can fly a long, 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 long way. Uh, but they managed. They managed to make it to Devil's Bayou uh, just in time to to crash land. Poor Orville. <laughs> he gets shot. He does. It's, it's no good. Uh, because his because tail feathers burnt. Yeah. Well, because what's happened in the meantime is is Penny has escaped. Right. Penny yes. is trying to run away uh, down to Devil's Bayou. And they send the alligators, Brutus and Nero, after her, the pet alligators. Um, how they train the pet alligators, I'm not really sure. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, but they send Brutus and Nero after them, and it's not until Brutus and Nero manage to bring them back, bring Penny back that then uh, Medusa is out looking for, the, for them on her swamp mobile. Her rocket-powered uh, swamp mobile. Yes. Uh, but Mr. Snoops, once they return Penny to the uh, to the boat, which they are living in, which is it looks like an abandoned steamship. I th- a showboat is what I thought it was. Yeah. Look, it, I'm going to start controversy. Dun, it looks like, it looks like the showboat from Song of the South. There you go. Ship could be. Yep. Brer Rabbit shipwrecked in the middle of the bayou. Sorry. He'd have been eaten by those alligators, I'm just saying. Now he'd have hopped along the backs of them. <laughs> Not Brutus and Nero, man. Those guys are bad. 
<laughs> but they, they managed to bring it back. And so what happens is Mr. Snoops has this fireworks thing. I don't understand it, but he, he has an attraction to fireworks, and he sets them off saying, found girl. Very subtle, his way of sending messages to uh, Madame Medusa. Yeah, apparently nobody really cares what goes on in the bayou. Now that I can believe. Having been to the bayou a few times, I can believe that. People let live and let live, you know. Uh, but it's those fireworks that end up uh, poor, poor Orville uh, ending up crab landing. <laughs> and that is the cause thereof. Yeah. It's, uh, well, fortunately, uh, Bernard and Bianca had an umbrella, though. Yes, because everyone it. knows in, animated, in animation an umbrella can carry seven times its weight. Or if you're the penguin. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So they managed to they managed to end up um, crash landing safely with the two of them in, in the water, and of course then we get everyone going back to the boat and kind of washes them around. Um, and we we get to we get to see that uh, Penny is actually there. This is the scene I was referring to earlier. So Penny's in the in the boat, and Brutus and Nero bring her in. And they drop Penny and go report to Snoops, and then they go, they go and chase Snoops up the couch, right? They're like chomping at him because he won't listen to them. And then the next scene we cut to, you know, Madame Medusa's back, Snoops is off the couch, Brutus and Nero are hauling Penny upstairs. Like we don't see. There's no resolution of the fact that they're about to eat Snoops. <laughs> well, he's still alive. Well, sure. There's that. But you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it, I didn't notice it the first few times I saw the movie, but I was watching when I was watching it yesterday. I looked at it, and it's like it's almost like a what they call a jump cut, because it's not like there's something in between those two things. It's like there they are. There's Brutus and Nero up against the couch, about to eat Snoops, and then we cut, and there they are, you know, five feet away from the couch with Penny. Yeah, it's uh, it does have problems. Well, there's like that scene later on. So obviously, like there's there's two scenes between here and the end of the movie that interests me regarding the alligators since we're on them for a minute yeah is um there's one where madame medusa is sitting on the couch stroking the alligators right like they're like they're dogs or cats right and um so that's very interesting but later on in the movie they turn on her at the end of the movie right yeah i didn't get that either it was so i don't know the strange motivations in the alligators that's all i've got to say yeah. It's sometimes they want to eat, sometimes they don't. Yeah, I I got nothing. I mean, they're just, they're they're cute, don't get me wrong. They're probably two of the cutest characters in the movie. Yeah, no, I like them. I like the I like Brutus and Nero. They're they're amusing. But don't forget we also meet Luke and Ellie Mae at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm, I was about to go back to is that, you know, in the meantime, they are uh, you know, when Bernard and Bianca crash land, they they find uh, Luke and Ellie May, who are the the other mice of the bayou, and we get introduced to this whole cast of characters uh, that is hanging out in the bayou that basically serves as sort of the comic relief of the movie. But there's there's Ellie May and Luke. Um, the two, they're actually muskrats, not mice, but they look like mice. Um, uh, we also have Deadeye, who's a rabbit. Uh, yes. We have Gramps, a, a grumpy turtle. Uh, we have Digger the Mole, um, Deacon, and uh, Deacon the Owl. Yeah, it should be noted that most kind of hanging out. 
most of the other characters are not actually named in the movie. The names come from a uh, book adaptation of the movie afterwards. So, like, Deadeye is not called Deadeye ever in the movie. He's the, yes. name, the name comes from the book. I think the only one who's actually uh, named in the movie is Gramps, the turtle. Right. I agree with that. I think you are yep. correct. Uh, but they, they all volunteer to, uh, to help out with, the, with rescuing Penny. Uh, and they, they even volunteer the services of even Rude, the dragonfly. Yes. Named, obviously, after the outboard motor on fishing boats. Yes. Also voiced by it. Voicing is a strange thing to say. We could say special effects by <laughs> um, yes. James McDonald, who does the voice of Humphrey the Bear. I just want to say because Humphrey is like one of my favorite all-time Disney characters. So. Do you know what else? Who, who else's voice he was doing at this time? No, who? Mickey the Mouse. Was he? He was. He was the voice of uh, Mickey Mouse up until, actually, I believe, until this film came out. Uh, it was shortly, it was this year, 77. Yeah, he was the one who took over from Walt Disney. Yeah, see, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, he did, he did this buzzing sound before. Like, he does, um, he does, he did a B in a lot of the Donald Duck shorts. He did, um, he did bees in Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. That's kind of his thing. But yeah, he took over for uh, he he was Mickey Mouse in Fun and Fancy Free. Ah, interesting, interesting. And uh, he was replaced by Wayne Allwine, who was the voice of Mickey Mouse up until his death, uh, I believe, last year, right? Um, you would know better than me. Yeah, I think I think that's correct. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, Wayne Wayne died uh, th- three years ago. Sorry, just looked that up. But but yeah, there's only been uh, four four people who have, who have voiced Mickey Mouse uh, continuously, really. Uh, and this is one of them, James McDonald. So there you go. In case you're ever asked that in trivia night. I got it. Okay. Oh well, we cleaned up on trivia. <laughs> yes, folks. If you're ever going to to the. Um, Campfire, either uh, bring us with you or make sure or was, watch out for our teams. Real, really quick story. So the group of the locals went to the campfire at Fort Wilderness to watch the movies on a Halloween last – was it Halloween we did that on? That was the one where we did that because I know we went twice. Yes. And um, they do these trivia questions before the movies. And so we got there and we sat through the trivia question and we broke, but we were a big group. And so we broke into three teams because there were like 20 of us <laughs> and two of our teams were the first and second place teams. Nice. And it was all movie trivia. So it was just, you know, we of felt bad. Yeah. Fabulous. <laughs> I would expect no less of the two of you. I would have been disappointed if you didn't win. And we each are different teams too. <laughs> Yeah, we were on different teams. Charles on there one team, I on the other team. I'm proud of you both. <laughs> uh, but it, it's it, even rude. Uh, puts the two mice in a leaf and sort of forms a boat, and they they manage to get over to um, the the boat and and follow Medusa inside, and they figure out what's going on. Is that Penny was was captured by Madame Medusa, and is being dropped down a hole to find the Devil's Eye. Yeah, well, That's they're the actually whole, whole thing. They're actually tracking the gators and Penny back. Yes. Is what's right. going on. Because the gators are actually, like, caused them to swamp a few times and stuff like that. Yeah. 
swamp means filling the boat with water for people who don't know that term. There you go. And what they end up doing at that point is a, 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 sort of a long gag of the alligators, Brutus and Nero, uh, attacking Bernard and Bianca uh, all over the boat, including a giant pipe organ, which I agree lends credence to your, your showboat theory, Todd. Oh, yeah, see, see, there we go. Yeah, I like I, the pipe organ stuff. That's that's yeah, good stuff. It's important to note because it's a plot point is that they spot the mice. They don't see them. They smell them. Yes, they smell Miss Bianca's perfume. That's that. You're right. That is a very key plot point. So uh, uh, the, this, this comes back later. The organ scene is probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie, just because it's very conceptually cute. Oh, and it's it's old school Disney too. Like it's just right out of their shorts and things. You know, yep. it's it's right out of the short cartoons. It's great stuff. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Because what they end up doing is Brutus and Nero playing the piano while the mice are actually in the pipes, and so they play the piano to get the mice to fly up from the air rushing through the pipes, and then the other alligator tries to get them and fails. And it's just it's sort of just sort of slapsticky humor, uh, and it, it works really really well. Yes, and showing that the gators are smart. Smart gators. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. Also, uh, don't forget, Madame Medusa start, then starts shooting up the place with a shotgun. Yes, which she does. It's For a boat on water. This is never a good idea. Yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, okay. I don't, I, yeah I, don't, I don't get it. Whatever, you know. Yeah, no, she no, wants no. to start shooting, let her shoot. That's what you, I'm saying. You know what we forgot to mention? What's that? It's very, very important. Ryan, yes. who plays Mr. Snoops? Who plays Mr. Snoops? Yeah. That would be Joe Flynn, ladies and, and gentlemen. And why do we love Joe Flynn? Because Joe Flynn. Joe Flynn. Well, because he was on McHale's Navy, right? No. No, I meant Disney-wise. We, yes. But that's a good reason. Yeah, that is a good reason. What do we because on this he's podcast? Dean Higgins. Yes, that's right. He's Dean Higgins from from the Medfield College trilogy. That's right. I just felt like we hadn't mentioned the Medfield College <laughs> trilogy enough time that it was appropriate to bring up. You can't mention the Medfield College trilogy enough. Yeah. So sadly, he um, actually died during the making of the film, but they had recorded enough with him that they were able to use his lines for the complete movie. Yes. So. I- it was yeah the movie they they cast Joe Flynn and um, and he he died actually in 1974 which shows you um, how long ago that they started work on the film his character the the basis of the the look of the character is actually the animation historian John Colhane uh, who actually said uh, if you read some interviews with him he's like basically they would call me into the studio to discuss stuff and these guys would be sketching and they he didn't actually realize they were sketching him for a film uh, until he saw the actual film <laughs> oh that's funny yeah uh, but it's it's based on him it looks like him um, and he was just overjoyed uh, when he finally saw it Cool. Can you imagine being made into a Disney character without actually knowing it and going to the movie theater? And seeing yourself? Yeah, that's pretty nifty. Yeah. yeah. Cool I like stuff. that. Uh, they managed to uh, – Bianca and Bernard go up to Penny's room, and it's right before this, um, actually, that uh, they have the the scene where the, the big Academy Award-nominated song is, which is where Penny gets sort of – 
depressed and is looking out the window hoping that somebody will come and help her and they have the uh, someone's waiting for you song uh, it's sung right after uh, Medusa calls her down to her room and and speaks to her and says you know uh, try, she's trying to charm her trying to be nice to her to get her to do what she wants uh, and she says well once I finish won't you take me back to be adopted and she's and Madame Medusa says well why would anyone adopt a homely looking girl like you in other words basically calling her ugly just like the uh, the other kid in the orphanage did very yeah. sad also apparently indicating Madame Medusa had no mirrors yeah. Nope, because she's in the middle in this during this whole speech. She's in the middle of like plucking her eyebrows and doing all this kind of stuff, and she's like, ah, yeah, yeah. no, she ain't she ain't a looker. No, no. The end of the song is when uh, Bianca and Bernard go into her room and they meet up with her for the first time. Yes, yeah, and apparently Penny can hear the animals talk. Well, yes, well, but we knew this already because she was talking with Rufus earlier in in the flashback. Remember. Yes. I'm just saying, so, none, of the, none of the other characters, human characters, can hear the animals talk. She also doesn't talk to the gators. Oh, she does, but they, and they seem to understand her. I guess they do understand her. Yeah, but they, but don't, they don't talk back. Don't talk back. No, because they they're don't. gators. What do they have to say, really? Yeah, yeah. By the way, I wanted to say that um, Penny's uh, teddy bear, Teddy, is uh, intended to look like a specific Disney bear. Indeed. Humphrey, yeah. right? Oh, no. No, no, no. no. <laughs> the, the cuddly and whatever inside. Cuddly little bundle of stuff and fluff, right? Did I get that right? Cuddly little cubby stuffed with fluff. There you go. Yes. I never I never remember that. that yeah, it's Winnie the Pooh is the how, who she's... But it's, it's an old-style Winnie the Pooh, like pre-Disney owning the franchise or drawing the franchise. They, um, the original look of Pooh with the modern colors. Absolutely. Yeah. It is sort of distracting the first time you see the movie. I don't know if that's just me. You're going the, like, wait, it's poo. <laughs> I guess. I, I, it just, like, I just kind of take it and accept it. But I don't remember the first time I saw the movies, so maybe it's just me. Yeah, could be. But this is when they come up with the incredibly complex plan of how they are going to get Penny to escape unbelievably complex plan <laughs> yes can, can i go over the plan please go over the plan yeah so they offer to help her escape and this is the plan they formulate first of all they decide that they're going to use the old elevator as a cage to capture brutus and nero because they have to have brutus and nero out of the way because they're the ones who would end up stopping them okay they need something to attract them so they go and they use bianca's perfume as bait as, as part of their plan. Remember, because they, they know the gators are attracted by the perfume. Um, wait. They also plan to steal Medusa's swamp boat. Yes. Okay. And in order to do that, they plan to use fireworks as a distraction. That they're going to shoot off in Medusa's bedroom at this time. Yes. So let's, let's think about the complexities of a little girl and two mice executing this plan. And let's not forget that Penny comes up with, like, 75% of the plan. That swamp boat is, is entirely Penny, and I'm thinking, this kid needs to drive. Yes, that's, what, that's how and, this movie needs to go. And the fireworks. That's her part. Oh, you're right. The fireworks are her also. That's right. Yeah. So um, my question when watching this, I'm like, what do we need Bernard and Bianca for? Because they had the army waiting to attack. Uh-huh. And that worked out. 
Well, it did. <laughs> it does. Just, at this, from this just point not just not the way this 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 was laid out. I had a question about that, right? So they're okay. waiting, right? El- Ellie Mae is rallying the troops, and they're wait and they're waiting for a word from Evanrude. But that never came up. No, it didn't. That's right? another thing of like where they just kind of lose <laughs> some stuff. You know what it, I mean? Like it's like no one ever talked about you know all this sort of thing going on later that they would need them to come and charge and it never yeah that didn't happen no no they just somehow there was psychic powers occurring perhaps they sent even rude back and forth like 60 times that they just didn't show that in the movie no wonder why he was so tired yeah no kidding because they send him when they finally come up with a plan they send him back the problem is uh, they send him back to the local animals and, and try to get you know Ellie Mae and Luke and those guys to come and help. The issue is uh, uh, there are a huge number of bats that are trying to eat him, and he ends up being cornered in a jar uh, uh, and can't go get the other animals. Yes, just just like feet from the hole, where, the little hut where all the other animals live, right? Yes. It is at this point that I cannot really understand what happens because <laughs> we cut from that to the next morning, basically, is what I'm guessing. Yes. And they're, all of a sudden they are at the hole that they've been dropping Penny into to find the devil's eye. Correct. So what happened in between – they just decided not – they just got tired of waiting for Evenrude and didn't execute the plan or, or – I, I don't know what happened. I'm guessing that they just – that morning came and he hadn't shown up yet, so they had to stow away with her. That's kind of how I figure it went. But you're right. They don't really explain why they decided to do this other than that Medusa and Snoops, Snoops were probably defining it. I keep saying Snoop, but I know okay. it's Snoop. There you go. But uh, so they send Penny down into the into the well uh, with uh, Bianca and Bernard with her. Uh, they do find the Devil's Eye. It's on the other side of a spout uh, where water keeps coming up through the rocks, which is why Penny never found it before uh, because she didn't want to go on the other side of the spout where the water was. The mice find it. Uh, they manage to find it within a skull uh, and they pry it open. Penny pries open the skull with a sword and they manage to get the the. Uh, the devil's eye out, but the, the tide is coming in and sort of flooding the cave. They manage to just get out in time. Uh, and when they do, Medusa steals the diamond and, and runs away from Snoops and says, you know, you can't have it. And they nearly drop Penny back into the well. Uh, it's it's all very uh, – it's an interesting scene, though, because they they try to ramp up the tension kind of constantly throughout with, uh, you know, the rising water level, uh, Medusa yelling down. Uh, all those sorts of things uh, kind of constantly building throughout the scene. So was my question, in, was the diamond inside the skull like a trap? I don't um, know. I don't, I'm not sure either. Because, I, you know, as soon as, because it's like, as soon as you get it, everything starts flooding up. It's like Indiana Jones type of thing. If it is, they certainly didn't indicate it well enough in the movie that that was the intent. Okay. I, I mean, it's entirely possible because there's other things that go on, right? Like, for example, they come up, and Madame Medusa gets the diamond, and she instantly gets that greed, right? The, I call them ka-eyes. 
right? Yeah. And she and she decides that she's going to double cross Snoops, and apparently the Gators. But they don't. I guess maybe the Gators. That part was unclear to me. Maybe that's why they turn on her. She has, by the way, at this point in time, she blackmails Penny to go down the hole by keeping Teddy from her. Yes, which is but, very, impor- very important. But she's not going to give Teddy back. Okay, and no, we, and we don't. We find out that because later on that she's actually sewn the diamond inside Teddy for no apparent reason. Get past it. You get past the airport security. Really? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just I I find the the reason. I can't think of it. I mean, that's probably the the intent of the reason. It's just not a viable reason. Yeah, I agree. They, I mean, that's exactly it, yeah. And on on the Blu-ray, they actually mention in one of the uh, scenes that they um, actually cut a scene where she's supposed to be humming and sewing the diamond in, so you actually knew it was in there before they actually throw it on the ground and it falls out. Yeah, because you kind of have to deduce it later. Because when, when they get back to the ship, they have to... They kind of have to deduce that that's where the diamond is because she doesn't. She doesn't ever really say it. No, I, it's just there. So at, by this point, Everrude escapes the bats, gets the crew, the the Luke and the Ellie Mae crew there, and they all come and attack. Right. Yes. And so this is this is where they carry out the elaborate plan, sort of modified since they couldn't do it the night before. Yes, but it all plays out, oddly enough. There's but but a, I, have a, I, have a, I have a timeline question here. Yes. Okay, so even Rude was, the night before, even Rude was captured by the bats in this glass jar. Mm-hmm. Were the bats hounding him all day long? Because this doesn't happen again until nighttime. Well, I think the point is it's, no, no, it's, I think they takes them forever to get there, right? Because they're walking across the swamp they don't have the boat power that that the mice or madame medusa had okay so i think they've got to walk there i think that's part of part of what goes on but it's important to note that since bats are nocturnal i think that he actually escapes and gets in there in the morning and then they have this recovery period for him where luke gives him some rocket this is true okay and then he becomes super evan root again he does. This is true. It does rev him up quite a bit. Yes. Oh, yeah, it does. It's a fuel for his engine, so to speak. Hmm. Um, I, maybe that's foreshadowing. I don't know because, like you said, at this point it's hard to tell how things happen because we know that they're running towards the ship and we see them run up the gangplank of the ship. But then at that point in time, okay, she's got them at gunpoint with Teddy in the room and that's just Penny and Snopes. The Animals come in, and they distract, and then suddenly the gators are mysteriously already stuck in the elevator. Right? There's <laughs> – am I yeah. not cr- – right? There's, there's no them running down the hall and getting stuck in the elevator. They're just stuck in the elevator instantly. Right, yeah. There's no there's – no, yeah, yeah, there's no segue there. It's just like what I was talking about earlier with the, the, the gators and the, and the couch. Like it just sort of – it happened. Yeah. You don't need to know. <laughs> It's just an odd cut because it's just sort of the opposite of everything you see in other Disney films. You know what I mean? Like, like Disney's all about the storytelling and how to, you know, the flow from one scene to another. 
and it just stands out when it's not that way. Right. Even some of the scenes that are in Robin Hood, right, are very elaborate plots that go on, but it's it's followed through, right, almost to the le- – like you can actually follow what's going on because they do what they say. Here, everything that they said happens, but it's really – it just kind of happens. There's no play into it happening. Yeah. Right? Because whereas I have lots of notes for all the other parts, I mean I literally just have Rab- Rabbit, Bianca, and Bernard capture the gators. Penny tries to start the swamp boat. Rabbit and Owl set off the fireworks. I mean, these are my notes for this scene because there's nothing. It's just rapid fire scene after scene. Yeah. No, no. It's absolutely. It's just like it's one thing after the next. And then just all of a sudden, you know, the fireworks get set off. The boat explodes. And that's the end. Right. Well, they fuel the wait. They fuel the boat with the with the they have to fix the boat. The boat's broken. That's part of one of the things that goes on. Right, right. That's actually a very – that's actually the most intricate part of the whole thing because they got people in the engine, and then you have Mole, the digger, digger the mole, right? He's inside, and he holds the two wires together, and suddenly he makes the connection for the starter, and Luke pours his rock gut in as the fuel. Yes. Right? And then Madame Medusa's water skiing. On the gators. On the gators. Well, first without the gators and then with the gators. Correct. Um, and then suddenly the boat blows up, the gators are launched to freedom, Snoops gets away, the mice and Penny get away. I mean, that's basically the end of the movie. It just kind of, these are the things that happen. They're not really strung together very coherently. Yeah. And that's, that's I guess, my problem with, with the whole movie. Like, it's perfectly enjoyable enough to watch, but it as the story, it just doesn't hold together so well. Each of the pieces are fine. It's just... Kind of strange. Yeah, I mean, they worked on it for a few years. You would think that they would have been more even in there. I I wonder a lot too, though, if it's they had a lot of animation related things going on at the time, right? Technology for xerography, which I'll explain what that is, was changed at that point in time, and that's when they would take the hand drawn stuff and convert it to film, right? That's the process. Right, right. And so they. That pro- whole process had changed, but then you had certain uh, artists like Milk Kong who didn't want to do – who didn't like this new process and refused to have his artwork transferred to the, using this new process. So that's one of the reasons why sometimes the film is very sketchy looking, like, like, a, like Winnie the Pooh sketchy looking, and sometimes the lines are very fine and well-defined is because the, the new process would – help the lines become defined, but like I said, Mill Kyle didn't want that with his work. Right. So it's like this, there's this whole mixed thing going on. And, and so I wonder if that, that kind of set them back a little bit in terms of working on the plot, because obviously they did tons of animation work on this, right? It reminds me actually of uh, um, the other Don Bluth films. You know, like Secret of Nim and American Tale and those films in the way that it plays out. Um, and I like those movies. And I, this one, I like this one okay, too. Uh, it's just that it doesn't feel Disney to me. It feels resolved for the sake of resolving, and I don't know why they didn't just write an ending that did all of this but was coherent. Maybe they spent five more minutes of animation to tie it all together. True. Yeah, true. I, it, it's not like they didn't have work in animation done on this film, right? They had 40 animators on the film. 
right? Those those forty animators did more than three hundred thousand drawings, okay? And they animated fourteen sequences, which is a large number for an animated film, right? Those fourteen sequences had more than a thousand separate scenes and seven hundred and fifty backgrounds. So I, I just don't understand why you don't make another, you know, few thousand drawings, another you know, work your sequence better. I, I this is this is where I feel like I said, the concept of the movie is great. The idea behind the movie is great. I like what they were trying to do a lot. I just feel like they they gave up somewhere. I'm not sure why that feel it feels that way to me. Yeah, no, I know I know what you mean because I, I really like Bernard and Bianca, the characters. Mm-hmm. They just don't have a whole lot to do. You know what I mean? Like they, they, they show up and they and and they're kind of. I, I understand they're the central characters of the film, but you know, there's whole swaths of this movie where they're not in it. Um, there's pieces where, like I said, when they go to rescue Penny, I mean, Penny comes up with half the plan, and then you know it cuts to the next day, and you're kind of going, well, wait a minute, what happened to the plan? And I mean, you know, because even Reed got cornered, but it just it doesn't quite add up. Like the pieces don't flow together more coherently and I think the, the two lead characters suffer because of it um, because they're good characters and there's you know they, they have you know little quirks and a little bit of depth to them not you know as much as you're gonna get in a movie like this but you know they're, they're good characters that don't really I don't know it's, it's almost like they don't belong in this story to a degree <laughs> yeah Maybe it's it's just hard to say. It's like I feel like there's there's just stuff missing. Like like you were saying at the beginning, is that's really the fundamental problem? Is it's it, the movie has this incomplete feel to it. Yeah, that's true. but we should we should probably finish talking about the plot so that we don't in you know cover the plot incompletely. So. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so they they finish up of course and they uh, get away and. We get back to New York, and we see on TV we we're in the Rescue Aid Society, and we see on TV that the Devil's Eye has been given to the Smithsonian, and Penny is uh, about to be adopted, and we're there. She's being interviewed outside of uh, the orphanage, uh, and she gives credit to the Rescue Aid Society as well as uh, Bernard and, and Miss Bianca uh, on the TV. But then almost right away, we get a, another message has come through, and Miss Bianca volunteers to go and, and join in the fun with Bernard, and they're off again uh, on Orville as the movie ends. Yeah, that's basically it. And the, right, and uh, Evan Rue is like their pet now. That's – I'm not sure how else you'd describe Mascot. That. Sidekick? I don't know. Boy no, Wonder. That's the movie. I, in a nutshell, <laughs> I wanted to comment too. So it's important to note that he notes that it's Friday the thirteenth for this last flight that they go off on. So if, if you pay or paying close attention to background stuff, it's way back in the beginning of the movie uh, in Madame Medusa's office. The calendar says that it's Thursday the twelfth. So the entire movie basically takes place in the course of a day. Interesting. I didn't catch that, but. Huh. That seems sort of impossible. I a lot. Ha- well, yeah, because don't they go through two complete nights? Yes, they do. <laughs> I, I'm just interesting. 
it's I don't know why that is, but there it is. It's like apparently they invented time travel. Maybe I need to talk to some mice. Wait, perhaps, I have time travel. Perhaps call and Frank and Ollie know something you didn't. Huh. Maybe you need to send a message in a bottle to rescue aid society. Done. Awesome. Address it from Jasper. Maybe we'll still talk to him. Address it through Jasper. Yeah, so that is The Rescuers. Uh, like you, like we said, it's being uh, re-released on Blu-ray, so if you want to go and uh, check it out yourself and, and look at it. I know uh, I have uh, several of our Disney friends are, are huge, huge fans of this movie, so uh, I imagine they will be selling a lot of Blu-rays. Uh, so. I just wanted to note that while they fly away, it's the movie ends with uh, the song Tomorrow is Another Day, which is paying homage to the last line of the Gone with the Wind. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yes. Interesting. So, Southern Georgia boy should know that. Oh, it's been it's been it's been at least a decade since I've seen Gone with the Wind. Ah. You when you grow up that. here, you see it way too much. Yeah, well, yeah, it's my uncle's in the movie, so. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's a he has a brief scene but gets a line, so two lines. Hey, we'll take it. Yeah. So, ratings. Cheryl, what did you think of The Rescuers? I really liked it. Um, I hadn't seen it in a really, really, really long time. <laughs> um, so I'm going to give it a four. Todd, what did you think? So like I said, there are things I like, I like about the movie and things I dislike about the movie, like its sense of inc- incompleteness. Um, but I... I like the characters for the most part, except for the villain. Yes. Um, and that's, that's it. I mean, it's to me, it's middle of the road. It's a two and a half. It's not stellar. It's not terrible. I'll watch it. If it's on, I'm not going to pull it off my shelf to necessarily watch. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. I would, uh, I would give it a two. Um, which is, you know, what I gave Alice in Wonderland. So I, I like it uh, enough. It's just this is one of those movies that's just a per- from a personal taste standpoint. It's not my kind of thing. I don't I don't really care for the story. Um, the animation quality is good, and I could watch you know pieces of it individually as, as short subjects, you know, quite a bit. But uh, as somebody who just loves plot and story, it it doesn't work for me. Um, but I do like I do like the characters Bernard and Bianca. I, I, I wish they would do more with those characters, like Disney themselves these days, because you don't see them very often for, for as big of a success as this movie was. But whatever. Yeah, restaurants don't really get used in the video games or anything like that. So no, no. They made it's like they made the sequel and then they just forgot about them. Well, because then they decided, oh, sequels, we can make Cinderella too. Yeah, that was unfortunate. <laughs> All right, so that's going to do it for this week's program. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our look at The Rescuers. If you have a comment about the show, you disagree with us, go over to DisneyFilmProject.com, or if you agree with us, we don't care. Either way, let us know what you thought uh, and uh, leave a comment there. You can go over to Facebook and find Disney Film Project there, and you can uh, become a fan of us or like us or whatever they've decided to change their terminology to this week uh, over on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at, at Diz Film Project, and you can let us know what you thought of the show. 
So until next week, folks, we'll, we'll see you later. Snoops, you don't have a way with children. You must gain their confidence. Make them like you. Mice can talk like anybody. Didn't you know that? That's what Rufus said. Faith makes things turn out right.